Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to the program. I have Jim Lehrer on the program, and I'm excited. Jim is a bit of a hero to me, and I have been following his career and his books for a long time, and and actually consider a couple of them to be Bibles for for the workplace and for our personal life. So, Jim, welcome. Thank you very much, Pete. It's great to be with you. So, is it 17 books? Is that how many you've written? 17. 17, a magic number. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one was a big one, Leading with Character, correct? Yeah, that one was just released, and that that was the hardest, by far the most difficult, and I, I think it's the most important book I've ever written, and it kind of evolved quite by accident, but it, it was the hardest to do by far. Yeah, we talked about that when we first met. Tell me a little bit more about how it was an accident, and then let's talk about how difficult it was. Well, I, you know, I started out my career, I was trained in, in helping, you know, people who had severe mental health issues. I became chief psychologist and executive director of a large community mental health center system that served the whole central and southern part of Colorado. Okay. Right after I became licensed as a psychologist and a very young guy. And I really, my training was to help sick people get well. And that's what I thought I'd be doing for the majority of my life. And there was a guy by the name of Dr. Joe V. Hill, who was at a college, he was a track and field coach superstar, an Olympic legend that was at the, in the catchment area that I was, you know, we had nine offices and covered an 8,600 square mile area. And he and I got connected. We became really close friends and, um, he kept asking me, you know, he was a track and field master coach and he created so many superstars. Okay. And he kept asking me, he said, Jim, of all you know, as a psychologist, what could I tell my athletes to help them perform better? And I go, Joe, I have no idea. I know how to help maybe people struggling with, you know, illnesses get to normal as best possible or healthy. I don't know how to take a healthy person and make them extraordinary. I don't have a clue. Yeah. And he said, well, he kept asking me and I said, listen, Joe, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will do a literature search. I'll try to look all over the world and see what's going on. And I couldn't find a lot. This was back in the seventies and I'm going, geez, there's not much there. And he said, let me tell you something. There's a great, great, It'll be a burgeoning field for sure for a long time, but you could be part of something that was really going to be a, an important part, a big contribution, not just to sport, but to life. Okay. And I started getting into that and I thought, you know, I love to pioneer new ideas and new things. I've always been that way. It's my whole life. So I resigned to a 23 member board of directors. They thought it was a ploy for more money. They would give me a huge increase. And I said, no, I'm I, I want to start a kind of a new thing. It's kind of called sports psychology. And they thought I had duly lost my mind and thought I couldn't handle the stress. And uh, I lost a lot of friends over that. A lot of my mm. colleagues thought I was nuts. And I moved to Denver, set up a private practice and specializing in performance problems of athletes and realized very quickly I didn't know anything. So mm. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I thought, well, who was the best? I started... I played a lot of sports and a lot of people that I had 
interest and understanding was in the tennis world. So I, I thought, who's the best competitor in the world of tennis? At that time, it was Jimmy Connors. So just happened that there was a new United States Jimmy Connors uh, Tennis Center in Sanibel Harbor was just starting and they were looking for someone to run the operation. And uh, so I called up uh, Bob Davis, who was the GM, and I said, listen, I'll come down and I'll run your whole operation, but I want to have access to Jimmy and I want to learn from Jimmy's brain. So I went down there for two years and then I learned as much as I could there. Then I went on to the Nick Volatieri Tennis Academy and I spent six years. That was by far the most prolific learning period I ever had in my lifetime. It was worth like three PhDs. And we had uh, 240 of the most incredible collection of gifted athletes from Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Martin Blackman, David Wheaton, Monica Sellis, on and on and on. And I had a free reign. I, I had access to all of those players for six years. I collected more data. I still have boxes of data that I collected. I'm a numbers guy. I love to test things. And it was there that I began to understand what, what was going on with this marvelous machine we have when people start trying to push it to the, to the absolute max. And then um, after that, I decided, I think I had something now that I could offer. And I joined forces with Dr. Jack Grapple, who had his PhD in bioengineering and was the head of the biomechanics lab at the University of Illinois. And we decided to join forces and try to build something that was similar to the United States Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, but to make it a, a for-profit venture as opposed to a nonprofit. And everyone said it couldn't be done. So we started the Human Performance Institute. And we ended up, you know, it was a very successful company, and but it was a living laboratory where I could collect more data, mm-hmm. more and more data every year. We had I think now it's up to about 400,000 people have gone through the Institute and we had 17, we took 17 athletes to number one in the world. We took lots of people where they had never been before. And it's a very interesting database. And then we started working with elite hostage rescue teams, anti-terrorist teams from the FBI, special forces in the military, blue angels, precision flying team, And then all kinds of surgical teams, lots and lots of surgeons, medical people of all kind, because it's, we had a science-based approach. They love data. They love science. They don't want nonsense. So that helped me to, to sharpen and refine my understanding and how this human system is engineered better and better. And we collected, I was the most, I think most important thing I did was I put the most remarkable faculty together that I think is possible to assemble. And they were everything from George Dom, who was the commander of the Blue Angels, to people that I had seen in high stress venues, to the commander of the SEALs, to, I mean, people, people who have this extraordinary capability. So when you come in and you have, you know, someone's talking to you about stress or pressure, and they've been in those conditions, you're likely to listen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so, all of my books represent another kind of understanding. I never write a book just to get something out there. I either have to have something that I felt was important, important enough that I really didn't understand it, and maybe I could move the needle forward. So with each book, I kind of peeled back a little bit more on the onion skin in terms of what, how do we run 
an extraordinary program for people who want to push the envelope and do extraordinary things. Mm -hmm. And we had people like sumo wrestlers come all the way from Japan, work with Ray Boom Boom Mancini in his title fight with Hector Macho Camacho. I mean, the database we had here was just incredible. And in my training as a psychologist, there was nothing that I learned about character, zero. We are the Human Performance Institute. And people go, how in the heck did you get to character when you're trying to get people to perform at this remarkable letter uh, level? And I say, just as I said with you, it happened by accident. I had mm-hmm. no idea this is the data led us here. So we began to see that there was something going on. We all use a scorecard for understanding our successes in life and who we are and confidence building and a belief in ourselves. And we began to believe there's a, there's a connection between who we are as a human being and our relationship with others that is so important. And I, I, I guess it has to come from thousands of years of evolution. We are social creatures first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And those who didn't connect to others in a positive way, who kind of went off on their own or who isolated themselves are the ones that never survived. For you to care about other ones, to be kind to others, to have compassion, to be trustworthy, to be at least with your own tribe, with your own village, that people actually, you know, kind of came together and worked with each other because everyone had an issue. Everyone needed someone from one point. One was maybe a, one family unit was hungry, didn't have the hunters couldn't bring in whatever was necessary. And so they were able to borrow from another that did. And those that didn't have those connections didn't make it. So over thousands of years, that has been imprinted in our DNA, how we connect to other people. I love large data sets, data trends, and we could begin to see something kept showing up in in our data collection that led us to the fact that there's a connection between performance and character, how we treat others. And there's also, so we began to look at that in much more depth and began to divide character into two distinct categories. Those that help you achieve great things, I call that performance character. And those are things like confidence and resilience and focus and discipline. And then there's this very special category that defines your connection to others, how you treat others. And that is kindness and that's patience and that's uh, caring. You know, all the things that, that really enable you to be a, someone you can depend on, you know, reliable, dependable, uh, trustworthy. And then you have things like integrity and, you know, the, the ability p- to be responsible to others, to do what you say you're going to do. And so we began to look at those traits, what I called character assets. And we then we prioritized them and began to realize that the one that was at the highest level of health was not the performance which helped you determine what you achieve, but how did you achieve it? And if you don't get that right, I don't care how long you live, you always feel like there's never enough and you never really feel like you completed the mission in the way you should. And when you think about the two aspects of of character, you mentioned the performance side, then you mentioned the side of how you treat other people. Can both of those be learned or are there inherent things that you discovered that some of these folks had it or they didn't have it? You know, how were they raised? Yeah. What, was, what was it about their childhood or their parents that allowed them to bring those traits forward? Or could you coach it up? 
So that's a great question. That was a question we posed to ourselves constantly in mm -hmm. our in our you know collecting of information and trying to develop a model that actually predicted performance. And what we learned was that these are these are assets, and they are acquired. There is no coding in the genes that accounts for this. There's no evidence in any scientific literature that suggests that kindness can actually be transmitted in the genetic code. It's something that's extremely important, but it is an acquired capacity. And the same thing is true with focus, with discipline, with things like your, your ability to give your best effort and, and so on and so forth. Uh, all of these things have an acquired component to them. So how, how do you acquire them? Well, that was something that was really interesting. We, we asked people for years, what was the most important, you know, source of input into your moral and ethical character or into your performance character? In the moral and ethical side, they'd almost always say parents. Parents probably play the most important role. And uh, then there's this whole notion that people have a culture that they came up in. Maybe they were in a gang in New York City or in Detroit, and, and that helped to form their sense of connection to others, their sense of right and wrong and decision-making. And we began to look at all the inputs <clears throat> that could be from coaches, could be from almost any authority figure that was prevalent in your life for any long period of time. And if they had it wrong, you got it wrong. Right. So there, what we learned is that this system is a tragically flawed system. There are so many what I call coding errors that are in the system. And people have no awareness whatsoever that this is, they just assume that they've got it wired up. Even if I ask someone, would you like to go to a character training course? They look at you as if you are, are you indicting me for something? What are you talking about? I, I got that pretty well wired. I don't need that. So an athlete, when we take him there, goes, hey, I came here to get to the next level of performance. I don't need this character stuff. I don't know why you're talking about this. I think I got my character pretty well wired up. And we realized that, you know, those who kind of argued the most vehemently that they were icons of, of you know, moral and ethical supremacy, those were almost always the quickest to fall. Sure. And that what we learned was that we are all broken morally and ethically, and some are in pieces. And what we need to do is to try to understand how do we fix the system? How do we repair it? Because it is flawed. It's flawed. I, I identified 25 ways that your system can be hijacked, your moral and ethical decision can be hijacked. And we see it all the time. What's going on today with the pressure, uh, with the pandemic, with the election, with so many things, powerful emotions. Um, and the more you get into it, the more you wonder, how do we ever get home morally and ethically with this hardware that we have that has so many coding errors? And most of us never even think about where the heck did you get it? What are you referencing when you decide to, that this is right or wrong for you? No one's ever thought about that. We just kind of assume that it's pretty, pretty well defined, but there's no real, you know, we, we just, I don't know. It's just there. That's what I'm using. And so we say, no, we're going to, that's what the book is all about is taking that intentionally, deliberately and building what I would call a credo 
that is yours. You're not leasing it. You're not borrowing it. Um, it is your template for referencing whether or not you should or shouldn't do something and you take full responsibility for it. And so you have to go into your values and stuff. And that book is really a 150 day program to get that document clearly in place. And then you put that between your ears and that's what you use to vet moral and ethical decisions. So these are learned, no question about it. And unfortunately the learning is often flawed so we are all flawed. We're all broken in some way. And that's why you see people that you thought were really pretty solid. And all of a sudden they're falling from grace. They're going to what you might refer as the dark side. You see a, a very close friend of yours who you thought was the icon of virtue suddenly in a divorce starts using the welfare of their kids as almost a weapon against, it's the only way they can get back and hurt their the spouse, yeah. because they care so much about the kids. And now they're hurting the kids to get back at the spouse. And you're going, what's the most important value you have in your life? It's my kids. And they violate that principle almost constantly. So right. it's a very challenging, the more we get into it, the more we realize this is something we have to work on every day. Jim, when you think about the 150-day process, the learning process, I know a lot of people will look at the title of this book and say, leading with character and apply it towards C-level executives or high-level leaders in an organization. Is there a way or a method to bring this into parents at an earlier phase in their, in their development? How do you view that? I mean, how important is that? Well, again, you hit it right on the, the nail on the head, I think. The, the, the time to get this embedded properly is not when you're 50 years old, but when you are actually developing as a young boy or girl mm -hmm. and get these assets started and get it on the right footing. Right now, I'm launching with some other folks that have the same commitment called the Youth Performance Institute, and it's going to be all about character and trying to help parents and coaches to leverage all of the power they have to this crescendo of character building. We can, right. we can leverage every sport. We can leverage all the stress and everything at school, all the problems they have on social media. We can leverage all that stress to actually build, to stimulate growth in what I believe is the most important dimension of a human being. And that's their moral and ethical character. And virtually no one is teaching it directly because you don't know how to teach it. How the hell do you do this? I, I don't know. I'm not aware of anywhere that that is being applied either as a curriculum or you're right. I think parenting had this big gap, right? right? You know, when I was younger and I'm very fortunate, my parents were in my day. I've never seen my dad. I can actually say this. I've never seen my dad do make the wrong decision when it comes to morals or ethics. I've never seen mm. him do one. That's a gift. It's a it, phenomenal it, gift. Jim, it is a tremendous gift. He was he always made the right decision. Those always made the right decision, and there was no gray area. He never apologized for it, and he he's not a he's not a rah rah vocal guy. More of it was done by example than by word. Right, and that's that's how you often teach this most powerfully, mm -hmm. is by representing it in your own life, and your children will see that. And uh, but there are ways to you know if you want to grow. One of the great discoveries we had at the Institute, and it's not well understood, and you know, it, it may not be for years before people 
quite get it. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was one of the most exciting, you know, we have this remarkable system and we have a physical body, we have emotions, we have the cognitive processes, and then we have this moral and ethical ability to make, you know, connections to people that, you know, and values and purpose and so forth that kind of transcend just the normal operating functions mentally. Mm-hmm. And so, you you know, we, we know how to train the physical body pretty well. And if you go into a physical therapist, if you have a, a physio and he's going to rehab your, let's say your bicep or tricep or something with your body, we pretty, if you go in and watch them, how they do that, you'll understand how to train emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually. It's exactly the same. The big insight was that, you know, we're basically, when you learn how to, how to train one dimension, you can train all dimensions in that way. The mind is the body and the body is the mind. And they all, you can work from the inside out or from the outside in. And so we use the paradigm of rehab and we had some of the most brilliant exercise physiologists that I could find. And they were working on the physical body. And we, so we actually ran a whole rehab center and it helped me understand how to build the muscles of character, the muscle of focus, the muscle of discipline, the muscle, these are all muscles. They're, they are traits or capacities that can be strengthened or can be diminished based on how you train them and, and the kind of environment you're in. So if you want to build a bicep, you've got to expose that bicep to, stim, to stress. You've got to inject energy over and above into that bicep through lifting weights or whatever that is over and above what you would normally do. And if you do it repeatedly, the body goes, I don't know what's going on out there, but we need more bicep. And so that stress is the stimulus for growth. And the growth actually takes place during rest and recovery. Yes, it does. You have to, you have to allow the, the healing process to occur. That always occurs, the growth process, when you're not lifting weights. The stimulus for growth is different than the growth itself. And so... If you want to have, let's say, the muscle of gratitude or gratefulness, you want to build that, what you have to do is to find a way to invest energy in that dynamic above and beyond what you normally have. So let's say every morning you get up and you write a gratefulness list for three or four minutes. And you do that by writing with your hand all the things that you are grateful for in that time. And you actually try to feel what it's like to be grateful. You really trigger that emotion. And so when you write it out, your hand is, is triggering it, is doing something. And that's, there's a direct link between your hand. It's, and it doesn't work on a computer nearly as well. And this cognitive functioning, this executive function. And we've done so much great work in helping people make changes with their hand in doing this. So you make investments with your hand in the muscle of gratefulness, and you're really triggering that emotional response, and you're doing it regularly for three to five minutes every day. And something almost magically begins to to happen. Suddenly, when you're in the world, you're much more grateful. You have this prism through which you see the world now through a gratefulness lens that didn't exist before. And as soon as you stop investing, that muscle will start to atrophy. If you put your bicep 
in a cast, the day you put the cat, the moment you put the cast on and protect it from stress, that bicep will start to atrophy and you can lose your complete lose it. And the only way you'll ever get it back is if you allow stress to come again. So stress is the enabler. And that is true with all forms of character. And if you want to do kindness, acts of kindness every day, two or three a day, well, you just have to find a way to invest energy in that dynamic on a consistent basis. And eventually that dynamic, your body will go, or this amazing unit that we have will begin to transform itself into, hey, I don't know what we're doing, but we need more empathy. We need to be more trustworthy. We need to be more caring about our children, more fully engaged when we come home at night, because as a dead person walking, I'm not a very good example of how exciting life is. And I don't show that I care that much. So these are muscles. They can be built. And it's so practical. There's no woo-woo. There's no nothing. It's absolutely a practice that everyone can do. I can recall during college and in high school, I simply retained knowledge better when I wrote it down. Right. Even the practice of reviewing my notes or reading the book and writing the key points down by hand is how I recalled them. That's exactly, I think most people, if you were to ask most people, if you had to remember something and it was really critical, what would be the thing you would do? You would write it down. There's some connection between your hand and this executive function. You start to change the way energy flows neurologically. If you do it enough, um, it's the imprint is much greater. So, uh, and we've tested this with computers and with cursive writing is kind of for kids. It's almost like a lost art. So it's more difficult for them sometimes to write it out. But when they have to struggle to write it out and they think about it and they feel it more, then the imprint is actually greater. And imprint is the word I was looking for. You also made an interesting point about you know, when you reflect on the things you're grateful for, that's your first morning exercise. There are people that are inherently not wired to ever think about what they have versus what they don't have. Exactly. So you're forcing them to make that decision and that visual imprint, they start to, in the rest of their day after a period of time, they start to go, wow, I'm, I'm actually pretty grateful for that. And they wouldn't have thought of that. Right. The other thing you talked about is acting, you know, acts of kindness or empathy. Those are interesting things to reflect on your day. What could I have done in that situation to be more kind? And unless you do the exercise and reflect on it, you, you, you said, this isn't the, the process you went through, I will call a bit of rocket science to get there. But the actual right. practice isn't rocket science. No. It's discipline. Once we have the insight. Correct. And we understand how to build it. It just is so, con- you know, we know it's, you know, we have exercise physiologists doing miraculous things in a rehab facility every mm-hmm. single day. And what they are doing there is exactly the model we've used to take people to these outer limits of human performance. And it is, for me, it's almost like, I I wish everyone, I wish I had learned this much earlier in my career, but it took all these years. I guess I'm a slow learner, but we finally got some understandings that I think are transformative. And, uh, you know, it was so exciting for all these corporate executives, Johnson & Johnson finally, decided they wanted to purchase us. And, mm-hmm. you know, we really were not particularly interested in that, but they created this understanding. We built the connection, which is another really interesting thing. 
we're in the performance business. And we began to realize after all the data that we collected that really the most important thing that we were doing with everyone without exclusion, whether it was a Navy SEAL or some extraordinary performer and, and we worked with entire race car teams and you know NASCAR and Formula One, what we were doing, we were simply getting them healthier. Mm -hmm. We learned that health ignites performance. All we did with all these people, we were getting them healthier physically, with diet, nutrition, all that, or we were helping them emotionally become more engaged on the emotional side with the emotional valence, more positive, more optimistic, what we called realistic optimism, and to actually junk all the baggage they were carrying around anxiety, all the fear that was not productive, and really to clean house and to really understand how to, how to use your emotions in a positive way. And then mentally, we got them to, uh, to get healthier. They were more focused. They were more purpose. I mean, they were more driven to focus their energy on things that got the return they wanted. They were much more conscious, much more deliberate, much more intentional. And then we got them, most importantly, aligned with their purpose, their values, what they really wanted. How do they define success? What's the most important scorecard they need to score high on to be successful? as a human being, not just as a race car driver, but what is the single most important mission they were on and how does race car driving or, you know, boxing or anything else, how does that connect to what you really believe is your mission in life most importantly? And when you start ordering all that, something happens inside of you. You get a sense of when you align all those variables, people start getting much more comfortable. They're not really they don't live and die by the next performance. They're more, they're doing it out of a sense of joy. They're not trying to fill a void. And if they're treating others right and they have their priorities intact, there's a peacefulness about it. If I don't make it, you know, I'm still fired up. I'm giving 110%. But if I'm not building my, my worth as a human being on this performance, I know I have value. And that's what we call that hidden scorecard your connection to others. And then there is the scorecard that, you know, society has for you and that whether it be money, fame, attention, glory, whatever those are, but the, those don't, no matter how much success you have, those can't fill the void if the other one isn't right. So all those insights are little tiny insights, but the, there are a couple big ones. And one was a very, it's almost so simplistic that I embarrass, I'm embarrassed to say it, that health ignites performance. Just get healthier in all dimensions of your life and you will start performing better. It's that simple. It really is. And I, I actually have gone through the HPI courses and energy for performance was the course that I went through. We've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. The fact that a physical foundation built on exercise, proper nutrition is like a vessel right? Yes. If, if that is not there, all the emotional and anxiety things you're working through, they just leak out the cracks. They just, right. they, they leak out. You need that physical foundation. And we, as a society, we have not ever taught this, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you didn't have to teach it. You know, you, you, you physically had to get up and move around to do a lot of things, manual labor. Um, you had to get up to change the TV channel, right? <laughs> you, you, you couldn't binge watch 25 hours of Netflix. So inherently people were outside and more physically active in their daily right. lives. 
And quite frankly, the decorum of parent and childhood relationships back then was different as well. There were clear lines and expectations. There was demonstrated values and ethics that have become to blur. They've just blurred now. So just like exercise, where you have to you have to you have to schedule a period of your life if you're working in an office like you and I are, Jim. We have to schedule physical activity. Yes, 100%. we have to, be, and we have to be mindful of what we're eating because when we walk into a grocery store 50 years ago, there weren't many unhealthy options, right? Yeah, everything was yeah. typically fresh. Now you have to consciously make a decision every time you go to purchase food for yourself choose. and for your family. Exactly, especially for your kids. They don't have the the wherewithal to make that decision. And when you simply give them what they want, you are doing them such a disservice. 100%. And the, you know, the, now what, what you're applying in the character side is no different. If we're struggling with the information that comes through television, radio, print, that a lot of it is garbage, we have to consciously schedule and practice values and ethics and character and leadership in a way that we haven't before. So the exercise is this blueprint you're giving us for 150 days is a way to do that. Yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting dynamic. I, I feel like the, the most important, the best explanatory mechanism that we can use for what a human being really is and the most precious resource we have as a human being is our energy. Mm -hmm. So as Einstein said, nothing, nothing happens, nothing moves without unless energy may, you know, causes it to move. So the system, we can't, we can't really make big things happen in our life unless we have a big reservoir of energy from which to fuel it. And it's just like any other, your car or anything else, you have a race car, you've got to fuel it properly, or no matter how much capacity it has, you'll never find it. Mm -hmm. And energy comes from union of oxygen and glucose in the mitochondria of the cells. And it doesn't come from anywhere else. I mean, the body has mechanisms of energy production. And if you don't eat right, sleep right, hydrate right, you, you, you undermine the body's natural capacity for energy. And so if you want to have great energy when you come home at night, if you get tired and you're out of it emotionally to be engaged with others, kind, patient, the whole system begins to fall apart. So um, for us, the most important thing is to understand where your energy and what I call full engagement, your full invest energy, who should get it and who should not necessarily get it. And so the most important priorities would be the areas of your life that are at the highest level of priority in terms of your mission success of your life. And if you want to be a big spender, you got to put in a lot of fuel in that system, which means you got to pay attention. Just like you said, you know, you got to get up. If Whatever you have to do to exercise and eat right, and it's much harder today. And remember, you're a model for everyone around you that you're leading, your family, your spouses, your children. And it is a nonstop kind of challenge to do that in today's world. And you have to be kind of on fire. You almost have to be a nutcase because it's... Uh, you People know, go, oh my God, what's what's the story with you? And you see, because I am on fire, I want to make sure that I have a a big life, lots of energy, and can fulfill whatever I believe is the most important in the time that I have. And so I challenged this notion of time was our most important asset. It's mm -hmm. not. It's not how long you live. It's the energy you bring to the time that you had aligned with what matters most to you. 
Absolutely. And we were sold a bill of goods by the time management industry that if we just if we just invested time in those things that we cared most about in our deepest values, life would come to us, we'd be successful. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. You can spend five hours at home. You were there, you were present. All that did, that time management was took you from being absent to being present. And what it would take, what people want is your energy. You mm -hmm. take life out of your body and you invest it in them or in this cause that you're involved in. That's how you show your care. You yes. can care nothing and invest your, your time. But when you invest energy, you, it's pretty hard to fake it. Your kids, everyone knows when you're fully engaged. That's the greatest gift we have to give to the world. And full engagement really should follow those priorities that actually are second to none. And that's when you start believing that you know, you're, you're on track. Yeah, and you've written a book about engagement as well, right? So that is, it ties into everything you just described. I can, I'm starting to pick up this onion that you were peeling back over each one of the books you wrote and how you arrived there, right? Engagement's a big part of it. Energy's a big part of it. You wrote a book called The Corporate Athlete, which I consider one of the greatest books ever written. And I, I, I'm just so curious, Jim, and this is probably more on a personal level for you. Describe how you've learned and applied the principles that you've, you know, written about in your own life as, as, as a husband and a father, describe how those things have come together for you. Well, again, every day that we learn something, it's kind of like a wake up call for me. Am I, mm -hmm. Is this who I am? How much of this am I actually doing in my own life? If I were to do an audit of where my energy is going, if I had somebody looking over my shoulder and I'm telling people to clean up their private voice, and because their private voice is their master storyteller. What, and what mm -hmm. kind of storytellers am I saying with my public voice and my private voice, and particularly under stress, because I'm trying to get that to be wired 100% correctly with the people we're working with. I'm going, wait a minute, Jim Lair, you've got a lot of housework to do here. And again, I say, you know, I wish I had understood it with each of my three sons. My oldest son probably got kind of, I didn't know that much. My middle son got more and my last son got the most. And mm -hmm. I think he has benefited the most from what I have learned. But now all my sons, and we talk about this all the time, now they have their children. And, you know, it, it, it just becomes, it's a, it's a process of learning. And that for me is the most important thing we do. But so often we don't learn because we close the door on character. We think we got it. And we don't really examine our lives through that lens. And there's so much vast territory there that we can deepen and understand and get better at. And it's just, a, for me, it's a little sad that I had to spend almost all my entire career. The last 10 years were devoted to character when we finally made those understandings, you know, completely uh, available to us. And the, the book I wrote previously was the only way to win. And it was really for those in competitive sports mm -hmm. and competitive business. And that was the only way to win is to win with character. And the only way to lose is to lose with character. In that way, you really hold a standard that will be and create a legacy that will never be forgotten. And your children and their children will begin to benefit from that. So it was 10 years of my life. I wish it was the first 10, but it, <laughs> at least it's it's still, and I'm still applying it in my own life. I'm now on the third 150-day program 
doing it for the third time. I just started. And wow. I want to always push the envelope. And I, you know, I've made my mistakes. I've, you know, I really didn't understand a lot of these things. But now that you know, you can't go back. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't go back to that place that you were. And you were so innocent because you had no knowledge about it. Well, now, once you get it, you go, I've had people cuss me out and say, now, now that you've taken the, the, the tarp off, I can't, you know, I can't hide under it anymore. Now I see everything and you've made me miserable because now I know I have to do these things. Exactly. And I go, that's the reason we're doing it. And if you can imagine your family, your friends, your closest coworkers and your teams all going through this process, how much more, first of all, productive, high-performing everyone might be, but how much more deep the relationships become. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a great comment, actually, uh, Pete, that and that is that if you get better in the things you're doing, if you just get better, a little better as a husband, mm-hmm. as a wife, as a father, as a, as a son, as a daughter, mm-hmm. if you get better as a competitor, and in that process, you're learning, you're leveraging all those stresses to become a better human being, more caring, more character driven, more honest, more authentic, just a person that you know emulates kind of the if if you were to really write the eulogy that you would like to have written for you if this mm-hmm. was true of you what would you like for it to say and every day you're trying to make that happen in reality um what 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 are the things that you consider your greatest strengths that you would like to be remembered for almost no one wants to be well i won became number one in the world twice I won a four grand slam via, you know, on and on and on. What they want people to remember them for was the connection they had to other people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so interesting that, you know, every day you have an impact on, a, on the valet person, on a waitress or waiter, on, you know, someone in traffic, um, you know, on your sons and daughters and every little, you know, we have 15 to 20 sometimes more impact moral and ethical dilemmas in a sense almost like a reflexive action that we take and that chisels another mark on your character it actually you're building your character every single day and sometimes you chisel something you wish you hadn't chiseled and now you kind of have to do a redo you have to kind of rebuild that and and allow yourself to you know, to recognize what happened there and just commit not to allowing it to happen again. And, and every day, it's kind of a hero's journey. Every day you recognize, you know, you're trying to do something that's very hard and you're living a life that is, didn't come easily and that mm-hmm. you've definitely chosen the harder, the harder path. You're doing the harder right rather than the easier wrong. You're not taking the easy way. And so you can hold yourself a to a pretty high standard and hold yourself accountable as opposed to just saying, Hey, this is the way life came to me. And then I was born with a, with a faulty system and I've done the best I can. Hey, I'm pretty damn good. I'm not, I'm not in jail. I haven't, you know, <laughs> defrauded everyone. I didn't end up with like all these wall street people who have committed all the crimes. I think I'm pretty good. And when I keep saying, don't default to that, that can't be the standard that we want to set for ourselves. Right. We want to set a high bar that really at the end of our life, we say, you know, I wasn't perfect, but I got better every single year. And maybe every day I kept pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, 
you know, something happens. It's like we become an example for others. I love John Wooden in sport with basketball, how he leveraged the stresses of basketball to help all those young men become better human beings. And winning came out of that. Yes. And he said, if we lose, but if we're all getting stronger as human beings, no one's going to lose here. And he created such a legacy in the lives of those. They still never forget him because it was an impact that will last forever. His legacy will never, ever leave inside their, um, the lives of those uh, young men who were involved in, in his legacy. And that's really what we all want to have is to somehow impact others in a way that, you know, it, it's like what we, we hope that for the time we're here, we've made a significant positive difference. You're right, Jim. And I, I had read in some of the studies that you've done when you actually have these people do their eulogy, they start at the end and work their way back. Right, exactly. None of these people write down, because the way you set it up, I, I, I love how you set the scene. You're at, you're at your funeral. All those people in your lives are there. And someone's reading this eulogy. People don't write down, well, I'd like Pete to be remembered for the fact that he had four Lamborghinis and six houses. And <laughs> they literally sit there and think to themselves, I don't know what they would say. I mean, what about what about so and so in my relationship with my my wife or my kids? Then they realize, holy cow, maybe I have this wrong. Yeah, and that in that in that time you have a special opportunity to actually listen to what all the people, not just your those that were your friends and loved ones who normally are there, but mm -hmm. all the people that you connected with in the course of your life those that you uh, might refer to as your enemies, mm -hmm. the people that were not your best friends, everybody from janitors to everyone whose life you touched in some way are all present and they all have something to say about you. And I would like for you to listen mm -hmm. to what they say. And now you have an opportunity to listen and you can listen before you're actually about to die. Right. And actually make it, it something you can, you, that you can change. Right. before at the end when there's no no way to change it. Jim, I, I, I appreciate you letting me maybe steer into some places people haven't done another podcast because I, I just found this so valuable to hear how you peeled back the ending over the years, how you've applied it in your own life. And I love the fact that you're now looking at a, a youth performance institute and trying to help kids with their parents and coaches and teachers and faculty to bring these values and the, the, the opportunity character provides for them and the fact that they can learn it. You know, there, there are a lot of people in this space who are trying to make contributions. And I was, would be the last to say that there, are, there aren't a lot of people doing wonderful things. And we're very aware of, of so many of them. But the needs here <clears throat> with youth today are so great. Social media has changed the game completely. And parents are, they're working double jobs sometimes. And now they're without jobs and the stress in the families with the pandemic and everything else. And you ask them, well, how are you doing on character development for your kids? And they're going, well, what yeah. the world are you talking about? Yeah. We're trying to survive here. And it's like a madhouse around here. And so we thought, you know, are there ways we could contribute in a, in a positive way to, for young people to build an, some kind of a resource where they could go and get information and get understanding about some of these things that are so tough in their lives, whether it be controlling anxiety, confidence, preparing for tests, uh, how do you become a, 
more focused, more engaged? Where does it come from? What, what are the dangers involved in social media and, and video games all day, all night and on and on and to try to be, to find a way to, to get them to train their inner coach to become a better coach, to be actually that inner voice is our ultimate coach. And we want to work with that inner voice to help them become, you know, more aligned and attuned to that coach and to arm that inner coach with some really, really great values and a sense of purpose and mission and understand how energy affects everything else. And a lot of the lessons we learned at the Institute to provide that not just to adults, but to children, to young developing boys and girls, when maybe it's the most important time for them to learn it. That's, that's great. And I, I wish you the best of luck in that endeavor. I, I wish I would have had this program when I was raising my kids. They're all up and out. So <laughs> Me my, too. My, my damage is done. <laughs> I'm moving on to grandkids as well. Well, Jim, it's been a it's been a real pleasure and the fact that you took the time to share this with us. It's an honor for me and, and, and really great to learn more about the history behind the books and what you've learned as well. And I'm grateful for the work. I hope to get the word out through this podcast and also just champion it uh, to my friends and colleagues. I think it's just a wonderful message and, and high value. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me, Pete. I hope we created some value for your audience and I appreciate you having me uh, as one of your guests. Our pleasure. You take care. Thank you, Pete.